Hi, everyone. Welcome to Refine and Grow with Justin and Lindsay. My name is Lindsay Allen. And my name is Justin Euler, and this is your podcast for proven strategies on navigating and managing work life. So on this episode of Refine and Grow, we're going to focus on the third party relationship or the contractor relationship. And this could be a scenario either in consulting or as a consulting firm to increase capacity to deliver against demand. You employ third parties, either a third party firm or a third party individual, AKA a contractor, or it could be in the context and situation of industry where you're using contractors, vendors to provide goods and services back to the company in lieu of full-time resources within the company, full-time employees within the company. So we're going to talk about those a little bit. I'm going to focus more on the services side of the house, and Lindsay's going to focus a little bit more on the industry side of the house. But a lot of the challenges are very, very similar. You're going to hear some similar themes as we kind of share some stories. First and foremost, this could come across as they're bashing on the third parties. Well, we have been third parties. We are third parties in and of ourselves. And so we're going to talk about some key challenges that most anyone could run into. And they're also, it's really a message back to ourselves as well as to how we engage when we are in the position of serving as a third party. So really take it in the spirit of if your industry or you're in services and you're leveraging third party services, use it as a way to be watchful and mindful of how you enter in and engage in that relationship, the positive and the negative. And if you are then someone serving in a third party perspective, think about some takeaways and how you engage with your partner in a way that's profitable, drives value for both of you. Because at the end of the day, that's what this is about. We're in business. As a former mentor used to tell me, we are not not for profits. We are here to make money. We want to do so honestly above board and with good intent. And we want to drive value for everyone involved. And that's the posture I'm going to assume that most of us are in. Obviously, or clearly, I should say, not everyone is in that game, but a lot of people are. So that's what we'll focus on. Before I kind of jump into the services side of the house, Lindsay, anything you would share as part of the preamble? No, I was just thinking that this episode is great for folks who play that third-party vendor role, which I mean, 90% of my career, I'm a third-party vendor. It's hard sometimes for the third-party vendor to see the experience through the lens of the client or the partner and vice versa. So that's another important aspect of how this episode can help reach the audience is to depict what it feels like and looks like on the client side when you're working with third party vendors. Yeah. Well, with that, let's jump in. So I run a consulting practice within a product company. So you know, similar to like Microsoft Consulting Services or Oracle Consulting Services, OCS, I run a practice within a services organization that's part of a larger product-based company. Like all major technology companies, we depend upon our partners to help us deliver work. We, we have internal services folks, but we also, for scope and scale, we have a lot of key partners. We have major, more alliance partners, and then we have our smaller partners. In my particular case, I use a lot of firms, not in the alliance space, but in the augmentation space. And sometimes we'll use firms to deliver a whole project that we can't deliver, or we'll use firms to augment my team on a project. And there are pros and cons to both. I'm finding that the best model is a mixed model. 
where you have, in our case, our vendor, as well as our team working in partnership on all sorts of levels to strive for a much better outcome for our customer, for our partner, and for ourselves. And so working two in a box is kind of the model I'll go with. I'm going to start out, though, sharing some of my lessons learned. First and foremost, when you're working with a partner, make sure that your vision or the outcome you're trying to drive towards and the vision you have for what is mutual benefit, or let me reframe you need to have a vision of mutual benefit between you and your partner. It can't be just what your partner's going to get and what you're going to get. When I landed in our services organization and started working with some of our partners, many of whom are really great folks, the incentive was not set up in a way to really drive. And so part of it was what we were selling and how we were selling it into the customer the type of services we we're selling and how we were selling that service into the customer kind of sets the wrong expectation for the customer. It also set up a very transactional relationship between the third party, ourselves and the customer, which is not good because our work is so relationship-based. It, it shouldn't be about a transaction. Ultimately, it should be about a relationship. There is a transaction involved, but it should be about a relationship. We also set it up so that the work was wrote. What I mean by that is it was kind of washed, rinse, repeat. And so we do the same type of work for each and every customer. And that can breed a sort of complacency or lethargy where you just start, hey, I did this for the last customer and the scope of work we're doing for this customer is pretty much the same. So I'll just use the same deliverables. And what we started to find was that some of those deliverables, one, it wasn't contextualized, tailored to that individual customer's needs. Two, there was really not a lot of consulting happening. It was really a lot of, let me just wash, rinse, repeat. And then in some cases, deliverables would have old clients' names, old client data. Well, I'll let you draw your own conclusions on what that is, but it's not good. And so we had issues with consistency, we had issues with quality, we had issues with doing good work that was contextualized and addressed the customer's business problem and drove towards the right outcome and set the right expectations. So we had a problem. And a lot of our third parties were not working well with our project managers and our delivery executives. And that was problematic as well. So it kind of felt like instead of coming to the customer as one team, we were coming as a bunch of little teams, all with very different incentives, all driving towards different outcomes and really creating a lot of chaos. That was not good. No bueno there. So some of the things that we started to do, one, as we would go in and kind of start to fix these projects is we realized there are a couple of problems. There are some things that predated my practice that we were changing retroactively. And there are some things we knew we could change going forward. So one of the things that we changed is you've got to use our methodology. We developed a new method for delivery. You've got to use our methodology. You've got to use our toolkit. Can't use yours. You've got to use ours. And that fixed some things for the most part. The other problem we realized is that a lot of our third parties were using subcontractors. So a third party was using a third party. So it's like a mercenary hiring a mercenary to work for us. So then you not only had competing priorities and incentive and between us and our third party partner, but now you added in yet a third dimension to that. And that individual had their own motives. And that's where we started to see just wash, rinse, repeat, pulling deliverables over from prior clients, keeping old customer data in there, old customer naming, no tailoring, no contextualizing, none of that. And what we found is they got paid the same, whether they did good work or not. And 
not only that, but we were causing part of the problem in the sense that on our projects, our PMs and delivery execs got better margin using third parties. So even though they didn't like the third parties and they thought the third parties were going rogue and not really functioning as a team, at the end of the day, their margins were better. And so why would I use my internal team that might deliver higher quality work and really drive better client outcomes and in the long term probably really make us more money? We see the impacts of margin right now. Honestly, I don't think there was a lot of ill intent. I don't think there are a lot of people out there scheming the system. I'm sure there are one or two. I just think it's how the incentives were set up. It was what folks were being measured on. And you can see that margin change. We're making good margin. Then our third party is not having to pay for a full-time employee. And they're really in the driver's seat on setting rates with their contract subcontractors. You just see the margin game being handed down. Everyone's making money but the clients aren't really getting the work and the internal team where there's already sunk costs are having to go back in, repair relationship, repair work, and really rebuild brand reputation. So it really became somewhat of a quagmire. So a couple of the ways we fixed that. One, we tried to take away that margin incentive by working with our leaders and the different practices to say, look at the long game and in the long game, you're going to make more money. You're going to see a higher rate of return over time if we use internal consultants. Two, it's already sunk costs. So you're actually incurring double the cost. You're paying for the third party and you're paying for the full-time consultant that's sitting on the bench, not delivering work. So it's really more cost in the long run. Three, better client outcomes, better customer satisfaction. So that was how we started to load balance and use our third parties more as augmentation of existing teams to expand capacity rather than doing the work for us. The second thing we did, and I mentioned earlier, is single methodology, single toolkit. We still have a long ways to go on better enabling our partners in that way, but we definitely have started to focus on that so that our partners are not necessarily certified, but they understand our ways of working. They understand our tool set. They understand our framework and they adopt those. And then we just built in tighter checks and we provided oversight for my team's leadership. We provide oversight of our third-party work which not all of our third parties liked. And I get that. I don't think I'd like it either if I were in their position, but we kind of required that so that we can manage work and ensure quality. So that's kind of from the services angle. And again, I get it. I've been a third party. I will continue to be a third party in many instances, and I will leverage third parties. There can be really a lot of mutual benefit through the use of third parties, but we certainly run into some challenges where we have strong relationships with our third parties and where we have strong accountability, we drive better outcomes. And we're growing so quickly and there's so much demand for our type of services that we're going to be continuing to use third parties. So Cutting our third parties off or shaming them, it's not going to work, right? We have to build truly, I use that term partner. Well, that implies partnership. So we have to really ensure that we have really strong partnership. There is a lot of continuity between the examples you just provided, Justin, and what I've seen as a management consultant working with large industry-based companies who contract out some of their services. And similar to the way that you described it, there are some contractors who augment the services and others who are partnering closely with the internal industry managers and executives on delivering projects that optimize the operations of their team. What I've seen a lot with 
industry clients who are frustrated because I work in an environment for the last 10, 15 years where there are multiple vendors. And I've been on several projects where we are changing from one vendor provider to another vendor provider. And we're transitioning a book of work from one contractor that augments services to another contractor that augments services. Or I've taken over projects for a management consulting company that owned a project, did not deliver what the client was expecting, and now they're starting over with a new group of management consultants. And so I've gotten a lot of feedback and seen and experienced from the client's perspective what it's like to manage these third-party vendors, and particularly at scale. A lot of times the industry executives that I'm working with oversee hundreds of individual vendors through a few different account managers that represent those relationships. And I see a lot of frustration in terms of performance with third-party vendors. Typically, the root cause goes back to a few different things. One is when there's difficulty with performance, one of the first things I've mentioned to the client is take a step back and make sure that you understand if you've approached the right type of vendor, of third-party vendor for the outcomes that you're trying to achieve. And second of all, if it is the right vendor, so you don't want to approach a vendor who maybe does the augment type work, the what Justin was saying about wash, rinse, and repeat, do the same thing over and over. So for example, I work with a company right now who has a third-party vendor that does their reception services, and they want that to be a consistent feel every time, every interaction. And so those services are contracted out And they're really a staff augment group, but you wouldn't want to ask a staff augment group like that to identify how to implement a brand new software system. Make sure that you understand when you need management consulting and like strategic advisory type services versus when you want augment services, because you also vice versa don't want to waste budget and time spending for those strategic resources to provide augment type services. And so sometimes they go to the wrong type of vendor, the wrong category of vendor, or in other cases, if they have the right category of vendor, so maybe they have a management consulting firm working for them to implement some new software system, but they might be asking an individual on the accounts questions that they feel that person should know the answer to and can't answer it. And they then lose confidence in the ability of that third-party vendor to deliver. And so the second thing I always ask them is, well, are you engaging at the right level? Like, are you asking somebody tactical or are you asking someone strategic? Because I think it's important to understand from a management consulting perspective, you have internally in management consulting firms levels that people sit at. And you have junior consultants that you pay less for and then more senior consultants or managers that you pay more for. And sometimes you may be engaging with a tactical person because you have more of a tactical question. But if they're a junior consultant, they really rarely have experience in interacting with the client. That's something you do after a couple of years of reporting more directly into a senior resource. I also tell them, make sure you're engaging at the right level. You need to understand what that partnership's internal org chart is and reporting structure to make sure that you've got the right folks. Because 
typically there's an account manager that you go to to get the resources staffed up and work with on budget and hourly cost and the contracts and stuff. But then you have actually the delivery team. And you want to make sure that you understand, particularly if it's a really large team, who your primary contacts are. Education helps a lot. Just sitting down and understanding like, okay, what services does this contractor offer? What do they have expertise in? And is it strategic or is it tactical? If it's strategic, who am I engaging with? It can be a mix of strategic versus tactical. Like in the example where you've got augment staff, you've got like a manager or supervisor over the receptionist in the example that I had used. And then you've got sometimes tactical resources who are actually doing the things when you're partnering on a operations-based project, but you have those strategic leads who should be the primary folks that you're engaging with throughout the project. The other thing is sometimes the documenting expectations. So Justin, you were talking about having these third-party vendors using their own methodologies and documenting what the expectations are, what the methodologies are, particularly if the contractors themselves have subcontractors, it makes it a lot easier to cascade messaging and take out the opportunity, remove the opportunity for misinterpretation. When you're spanning broad teams, particularly with the groups that I work with, sometimes it's a team of 10, but more often it's a team of, you know, up closer to hundred, sometimes even in the thousands. And so documented expectations, messaging, check-ins from the client that can be cascaded down through that group are very helpful to get them aligned. And lastly, I think it's really important to recognize that within each industry and then within that industry itself, within the companies that sit within an industry, there's a specific language. And it's like each industry has its own language, but then there are different dialects of that same language. And so when you've got management consultants working for your company who are new, it's going to take them a minute to understand the language. Because I think that a lot of times when you sit in industry and the longer that you're in industry as a client, you just sort of learn to speak the language and you use a lot of acronyms, or you sometimes might talk about an individual versus a title or a role in meetings. And that's really difficult for somebody who's new to understand. And so they have, particularly in a consulting type role, very minimal time to ramp up, learn the language, learn who's who, and wrap their head around everything. And so sometimes I have seen clients just make a decision or a judgment before the vendors had enough time to onboard. So I think it's also understanding the length of time that they've been working on the project or been part of the third-party contractor who's providing those augment services. If you see a performance issue, it'll be really important to understand the length of time that the person has had with the account, as well as the onboarding and training. It's also important for a client firm to get their eyes on and provide some oversight of how vendors are onboarded 
and educated about the company and the goals of either the project or the service that they're providing. Yeah, I think those are fantastic points. And I love the distinction that you make between expectations from different types of providers. It's really important and adds another layer of nuance. There really should be a different set of expectations based upon what that provider, that partner provider, that third-party provider, what service they're providing, what outcome they're driving towards. It's a completely different expectation. Yeah. I don't know if we said it or not, but along with that expectation goes clarifying the outcomes too. You got to be really clear about what are my expectations, but what am I anticipating you'll achieve? Yeah. hundred percent. Upfront early on. And then you can just hold people accountable to that. You really can. That's all for today. Don't forget to head out to our website to access additional resources such as case studies, tips and tricks worksheets, trainings, articles, subscribe to our podcast and newsletter, and more. And tune in next week for an all new episode. Thanks for listening.